Hi, I'm Paul Millard, and I'm about to have a productive conversation with Mike Vardy. Welcome to A Productive Conversation. It's me, Mike Vardy. And this episode, I am joined by Paul Millard. I'm really excited to have this conversation because I had the chance to meet Paul back in June of 2022. We were both at the World Domination Summit, and we had a fantastic time. Uh, Paul is an independent writer. He's also a creator and sometimes freelancer, we get into that a little bit, who writes about our modern relationship with work. And I love this because he's talking about a relationship with work. I love talking about relationship with time. We also get into productivity during this conversation as well. The book we're discussing and a book I think you should absolutely pick up is called The Pathless Path. And it's about how people are imagining new paths beyond the default path so many of us grew up with. We talk about his path, my path, how pathless they were, and so much more. So here's my conversation with Paul Millard here on A Productive Conversation. Enjoy. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Excited to be here. So before we hit record, we started talking about a bunch of things, including uh, your book, uh, which I you gave me a copy when we were at the World Domination Summit in uh, June of 2022, a, a conference that I attended on like 80% of instances. That was your first one, wasn't it? Uh, second one. Second one. Um, I could tell you by the time the the three year gap was was aged me out. The closing party I left way early than I normally would have. But um, but when we had a chance to chat, like I had seen your work come up, and I had seen the pathless path, imagining a new story for work and life, come up on Twitter quite a bit, and and. We, we have, we follow similar circles. I mean, the fact you're at World Domination Summit and have been on a couple of instances is proof of that, but also some of the people that we hang out with on Twitter or whatever, um, kind of, it started getting mentioning and, and, and I looked at it and I'm like, I need to pick up this book. So when, when you were there, I'm like, I, I'm going to pick up your book and you get, you're like, here, I have a copy and I have dog-eared this thing like crazy. And so we're going to get into it. And the first thing, I, when I texted you about this, I think we texted or emailed, is I said, David White, David White, W-H-Y-T-E, we'll put in the show notes. He can't. He comes up a lot in this book. So before we get into the idea of the pathless path and um, what, what role or what influence did David White have on you as you started to forge, for lack of a better term, this pathless path? Yeah, so I had... Uh, I worked about 10 years in the strategy consulting industry. Um, we can dive into that, but I think people get that, right? It did something impressive. Ultimately, like I felt disconnected. I walked away. In that first year, 2017, I felt super disconnected um, from like the reality I had been living in. I was like jolted into a new state of being, which was much more surprising than I thought. And that first year, I really just struggled. Um, it was actually at the World Domination Summit in 2018. I met somebody, Johnny Miller, uh, who walked up to me after I was like describing what I'm going through. We were sharing stories. He was new on his uh, new journey for him. And he walked up to me the next day and gave me David White's The Three Marriages. He goes, you need to read this. Um, in that book, I found a language to make sense of what I was experiencing. 
Um, in that book, I also stumbled upon the phrase, the pathless path for the first time, yep. which has roots in Buddhism, um, Taoism, uh, things, things like that. Um, and it was the word that was like, ah, yes, <laughs> I was able to sort of take a deep breath metaphorically and also physically and say, okay, I left a path where everyone knew where they were headed and could articulate that and map that out in their brain to a path where I might never know where I'm headed. And that is okay. And that actually might be a great thing. Um, David White left his path. He worked as a naturalist then ended up in the nonprofit sector and decided to become a poet in his 30s, which is a crazy thing to do in America. <laughs> um, now, like, and he writes about that journey and he has access to a language, um, his Scottish roots and just like, I, you need to just read one of his books to experience it. It's an experience and it gives you a felt sense that different ways of seeing the world are possible. So yeah, profound effect on me. And as I went through the book, because, uh, you know, studying productivity and time management for over a decade now, almost 15 years, I get the sense, especially with the job that you had, that you felt that this concept of what productivity was or is rather is broken. Um, there is, and when I talk about, I'm talking about in the general sense, the idea of, uh, you know, uh, producing to a level of, of, uh, of abundance, but not necessarily the things that you should necessarily be producing very quantitative stuff. And, and, and in the chapter getting ahead, uh, you talk about, um, uh, the term hoop jumper and, you know, the idea of students, you know, adding bullet points to their resumes and, and that just doesn't go for students. It goes for, I think a lot of people, are we measuring, do you think we're measuring the wrong stuff? Um, we're, we're conditioned to measure the wrong stuff. And, and if so, uh, how do, how did you ultimately realize to break free from that other than, you know, I mean, cause you were already going through those moments you said in 2018, how did you ultimately break free of that? Those bonds of like, okay, what I'm doing, it's just, it's the hamster wheel. It's, it's the hoop jumping. It's the things that don't ultimately, you know, they're not filling my cup. Yeah. I don't think productivity is inherently bad. Right. I think a lot of productivity advice comes from people who have either don't have self-awareness of their own motivations and incentives and how hard they're driven and how different that is from other people or just like tendencies to need perfection and organization. Um, and it's sort of, a lot of it is flawed by sort of the assumptions behind it, which is that I think there's this assumption in productivity advice that like anyone can do any work. It's just a matter of like getting the right approach, the right structure, the right sequence, et cetera. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of the soup we live in, in our reality. That is like deeply American too, which is tied to like how like the common knowledge of a career is like, you should try to make a lot of money, try to do your best. 
and like just put your head down and learn how to like struggle and suffer right mm -hmm. i think however we're becoming more aware the common knowledge is increasing that there's always a cost to that right mm -hmm. and so you can be productive and put your head down and grind and get better at things right but you might pay a tremendous cost that can't be valued monetarily. You might become wildly rich doing these things, right? A lot of people do when they go into like investment banking for a few years, they're just like are hustling on something for a few years, but there's always a cost. Whether the cost is your soul, whether the cost is like a disconnect from what matters to you, a sort of like cynic, cynical nihilism, um, the cost is there, right? And we see it in the previous generations, the boomer generation, right? They're so ingrained in this, put your head down, shut up and suffer. Yep. Um, so many of them are disconnected from their bodies, their hearts um, and things like that, right? So we've made tremendous progress in our world. Like, I think there's more of an awareness now of like, well, maybe we shouldn't just blindly do that. And yeah. like maybe in the knowledge economy, like blindly making reports and PowerPoint slides might not be the best thing to do for 40 years. Well, and not only that, but, and I mean, I, I, my parents are boomers and I'm a Gen Xer and the, the consequences of retirement, I'll do that when I'm retired. I'll do that when I'm retired. I'll do that when I'm retired. My mother's retired. She doesn't do much. She's too tired. She's too, and, right. and, and the fact is, is, and it was interesting as I was reading the book and you know, the story of your mother and your father and like the idea of like, I didn't get a degree either. Like I didn't get a degree. I, I went right from, uh, right from high school to work for a college radio station. And then from there I went to go work for Costco. And then from Costco, uh, I went, so I never really went and it surprises a lot of people, especially the work that I do now. But I, I almost, it's not that I didn't prescribe to going down that path. It just didn't seem like it was, interesting to me and yet and my parents oddly enough unlike they were very much because my parents didn't have degrees either um they didn't really push me in that direction um well, they're, they're I, probably I, the older boomers who uh were a little bit more hippie uh i know i well no you know what it was is that they got caught up in money money is an issue right so they got caught up yeah. and i needed to earn money i need to and that's always been and therefore my relationship with money has always been um, I actually wrote a medium piece, a uh, piece on, on medium called why I price my stuff the way I price my stuff. And it's pretty indicative of what, you know, the reason I price it is my parents were always like, um, <clears throat> well, we don't have a lot of money, so we're living paycheck to paycheck. And that was just the life we led. And I didn't want to lead that life, but I also didn't necessarily think that university or post-secondary was the, was the way I wanted to go either. Um, I didn't move as far as you did to get away from what was going on in my world, I moved across the country. I moved from the Toronto area to Victoria. You moved to like, there was a bunch of stuff that led to this, but you, you spent time in Taiwan. How, yeah. when you quit your job, which was, again, we'll talk about quitting the job to move towards what you're doing now. What, what feelings, I mean, you had your own in, intense feelings, but what were the, those that knew you and had been around you, what were they feeling? Because it's hard to understand, like, someone just up and leaving the life they have, especially in North America and going, I'm going to go, uh, you know, I'm going to spend a half a day on a flight and then I'm not going to come back for who knows when. 
Yeah. I, that first year was really hard on me. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I talk about this in the book, right? When you're on an unconventional path, you can't articulate where you're headed. Right. All you have is like a felt sense of like, you're trying to become a different kind of person. Um, you can't articulate that. You can't convince anyone of that. You can make up stories, um, which I did, but ultimately um, I come from a pretty like normie family. Everyone works full-time jobs, followed the default path and it like more or less worked for everyone. So there's this blind faith and blind trust that like, that's what you should be doing. Um, it made my mother extremely uncomfortable. Um, and it still does. I think, um, I think to her, like working a job with benefits is the correct way to live. Whatever I'm doing is risky. And I think sets off some of her, um, insecurities she grew up with. Right. But, mm -hmm. um, I think part of me like want, needed to go abroad to get distance from that part of me needed to go find myself. Um, and I think there's this phase when you disconnect or start a new chapter of like disappearing, you sort of need to go into yourself. You need to make your world smaller. Um, and that's a lot of what I was doing. And when I made myself smaller and my identity smaller, that's what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. um, it started just like disconnecting with like very simple stuff of like, hey, you're still happy. Like you're not making money, but like you're fine. Yeah. You're okay. Um, it's like and, a contentedness, right? It's like a level of contentment. Yeah. It was really powerful. Mm -hmm. It was, it made me cry a few times in that first month of just like how beautiful it was. And I think it was just like, Hey, I forgot yeah, what, it, what it's all about. There, there's and this like, haze. There's this haze of like people like I'm content, I'm happy, but sometimes it's just, again, there's this illusionary element to it. Right. Like there's this level of, um, and I think that can happen with productivity too. People, you know, like I got, you know, if you, cause you journal, right? You keep a journal, don't you? Ish? Not really. I pretty no? much share everything publicly. Okay. So it's, it, that's a form of journaling. It's just <laughs> yeah, it's, a weekly newsletter. I've done over 200 issues yeah. um, and probably hundreds of blog posts. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a sort of public journal. Yeah. And, 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 um, and that idea is it, it kind of, it, there's a cathartic, like there's a cathartic element to it where, you know, yeah. And I don't think a lot of people, you know, <laughs> there, again, I, I wonder if there's a positioning about, you know, that kind of, thoughtfulness, that kind of being present and, and reflection. You talk about reflection in the book. Um, you, you quote a lot of people in the book too. Um, a lot of, a lot of depth in here. Um, this level of reflection doesn't, it, people, I, I don't think, I, I think reflection, I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling here, but the idea of reflection is something that we don't necessarily value as much as we should. Yeah. I, I, had great jobs that paid good money. They're amazing. They're impressive. Um, people thought I was cool and impressive and I found it pretty dumb. dumb. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was like, this is so stupid. Like, um, and I, when I left, I knew I didn't want to create another job for myself. So I, one, I was just very scared of creating another job for myself mm. Two, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, so those things combined 
And the vulnerability of being on a path where like you have uncertain income, you don't know what you're doing, you don't know where you're headed, make you very vulnerable. So I had to reflect, right? Right. Reflection is a necessary survival mechanism of being on an unconventional path, which for me, who likes writing as well, is a positive thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think so many people with productivity advice sort of start with the idea that like, I need to be like X. They all want the hacks. Everyone wants the formula. Um, And I wrote an essay around this, not in the book, but it's like, you don't need a niche. You need a mode. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is you need to find the state of being in which you can show up in a mode and continue to do that. Now that sounds super simple, but basically requires you to be skeptical of monetary opportunities that are too easy and forcing you to do things you don't like and continue to experiment, which is incredibly hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, everyone has all sorts of excuses why they can't do these things. And it just takes a lot of time and feeling pretty dumb. <laughs> is there is there a um, myth around the idea of the pathless path and having to be someone of privilege. Like you said, you come from a pretty normal family, right? There's some people that, and, and, and it's, it's funny when I think about even productivity, I was reading, uh, I interviewed Alan Henry who wrote, uh, he used to be the manager uh, editor in chief of life hacker. And we had a great conversation. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, I think this episode comes up before it, but either way we'll link, we'll eventually link to it in the show notes if that's the case. But nonetheless, um, we talked about like, marginalized, like work rules for the marginalized. And the rules are different for people who don't necessarily like productivity tips don't work for the same people in the same way. If if you're, you know, if if you're privileged, then you have access to certain things and then you, then you wouldn't. Do you think that like, cause I could, I can almost hear in my, in, you know, I hear my own mind, but I can also hear people's going, well, that's fine for Paul because Paul came from a normal family and he, you know, he had a great job and he was able to do all this stuff and didn't have to worry about money. But me, I have to, I have a mortgage to pay. I have all that stuff. So like, let's dismiss, is that a myth? And if so, let's, let's work our way to kind of maybe dispel it a bit and break through some of those biases. I think it's a, it's a nuance, right? I think, um, there's the American (laughs) response of this and then the rest of the world, which the rest of the world are just not as soft as American knowledge workers, I would say. Okay. Um, so Guess what the background is of the people that say that to me? Um, oh gosh, uh, people have never really tried anything outside no, of what like they're expecting. Socioeconomic, oh, so, work backgrounds, countries. Um, rich white American males. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's high wage knowledge workers yep. who are very in the upper normie, like upper middle class mm-hmm. um, world that are very afraid of losing status, right? Yeah. So they have to, like, and I don't, it's kind of confusing, right? Because if you could do this because you have privilege, like why are people concerned that like, I have this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so like I write in the beginning of my book, my parents didn't go to college and their dream was like, I could, live the default path and like make a really high income in a job. Mm -hmm. 
to me, it's crazy that like we're not looking at increased prosperity as increased opportunity and responsibility to carve different paths and do bold things. Right. Like, so I want as many people as possible to lean into these paths. So like, is it privilege? Sure. But like, who cares? We have more people in the world that have this privilege than ever before. Right. Um, so Americans who make a lot of money are super insecure about not making a lot of money. The rest of the world, who also happens to have better safety nets in terms of healthcare, um, typically the people, like the majority of people that reach out to me are probably non-American. And I would say that it's lower income people or people with less to lose are more willing to embrace this path. And then a second thing is also like, a kind of person like me, which is basically hyper curious that likes technology. Mm-hmm. And I haven't really seen that has any correlation with like money, wealth, or status. It's like to us, it's this exciting opportunity, right? So it's not like we're going to lose things. It's like, oh my gosh, the internet makes it so amazing to connect with people like Mike, right? Mm-hmm. You didn't go to college. I, would never even have asked because I don't care. Right. I'm interested in your ideas, right? So this whole new economy is based on like proof of work, proof of passion, proof proof of giving a shit, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And like people in India get this, people in Malaysia get this, people in Vietnam get this. And like I do some online courses and online learning stuff. These people are the hungriest. They want it the most. They see the opportunity And they are so excited because they don't even have access to these comfy, cozy, middle-class jobs that Americans have. Right. Like you can do a dumb like marketing analyst job making 80 grand a year in the US. And that's fantastic, right? That is a tremendous innovation that we have more full-time jobs paying for full-time lives in in the world. Um, But most people in the world don't have access to that and the opportunity of like carving their own path is like incredible these days. Well, and, so, and, and there's long no answer to that. Well, no, but the other thing is, is that, I mean, when there's no, because they don't have access to it, there's no desire for it to a degree. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like <laughs> there's nothing to lose. It's right, like, right. They're not like, well, aren't you, don't you like, people say this stuff to me all the time. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to realize that this language structure is basically the structure of, Hey, here are my fears. Mm -hmm. And what they say is, don't you worry about like having a house one day. And usually those people asking are really saying, aren't you worried about not having a million dollar home in a really nice neighborhood one day with nice schools around other similar people? Yeah. And it was like, I've, don't know if I can have that ever again. I've sort of like priced that in to like, I may not have that, but I'm not aiming at that. Sure. Sure. <laughs> um, you talk about Wu Wei in the book too, which I don't think a lot of people recognize. This is really related to productivity as well, is the, the idea of non-doing. And man, when this gets mentioned to people, that's why you don't see it in Life Hacker or any of these like because <laughs> it's like wait a minute what not doing it but that's not what it is. Can you? Exp- we've never talked. I don't think we've ever talked about it on you know any of the podcasts I've done before. I'm very well aware of it and I I love the concept of it and I would say I follow it to a degree. Um, 
explain, can you explain Wu Wei and, and the relationship to what you did and, and what you're doing, I would imagine still in, in relation to the pathless path. Yeah. So it's a Chinese word, Wu Wei. Um, it, it, has origins in philosophy, Chinese tradition, Taoism, Buddhism, right? And like Lao Tzu in the Tao Te Ching says, the path can, that can be named is not the path you're meant to be on, right? Um, and it's sort of that similar principle. The thing that you think you should be doing is probably not the thing that you're meant to be doing, right? Right. Um, so, you, so you can't really aim and plan, Right. It's just sort of like an acknowledgement of the mystery of the universe. Right. Mm -hmm. And so in the U.S., we've sort of ingrained this idea that like if we're not doing stuff, we're a failure. You can say like people boil this down to work and say, well, you can't just not work like what? That's super confusing at the really basic literal level. Of course, you can just not work. Mm -hmm. Right. But what they mean is like it might feel bad and people will judge you if you're not doing stuff. Right. Um, and this is why I have people have a hard time sitting in a room silently, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yep. Um, meditation's popular, but the majority of people still have never tried it for or, a single day. And are or they try to win it. it, or they try to win yeah. at meditation, right? They, they're like, I've, you know, they're, which is not the point. It's actually the exact opposite. <laughs> if you try to win at meditation, you're not actually meditating. Right, so... It's very applicable when you're leaving a job, like basically you're super insecure and like, what should you do? You just work all the time. This is a failure mode of a lot of people that start to do their own thing is they just work nonstop all the time and they burn themselves out. My path has really been a bet. And I write about this a lot of like, okay, how can I pause as long as possible or wait to commit to things such that the obvious answers appear? And if you are doing enough interesting things and experiments and like trying to reflect, answers will appear. Mm -hmm. And like, this is something people don't trust, right? And I can tell you, you don't trust this if you're the kind of person that goes on a vacation and can't just wake up and wander without a plan on a few days. Right. Yep. Right. So you can wander and non do an entire day and not have a plan, but still do things, right? It's sort of like you're not, it's, yeah, I mean, until I ex lived in Asia, it was hard for me to experience this because I was running so many scripts and stories in my head um, in the US. Um, and sitting in Asia, for some reason, non-doing feels more right. I, I don't know how to explain. No, no, no. I, you know, it, it, when I was in the Philippines a few years ago, it, it there was definitely that vibe there as well. Um, you mentioned Steinbeck. You quote him in the book as well. I have actually, uh, you can't, I don't think you can see it uh, in, in here right now, but I have a quote from East of Eden where um, the, the line is, and now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good, which I love. I love that quote. And you've got the quote that, you know, from Steinbeck, which is, if it is right, you just allude to it. The main, it happens. The main thing is not to hurry. Nothing good gets away. Right? Yeah. And, and yeah, it's a, you, you it's a letter like, he wrote to his son. <laughs> yeah, And that's just it. It's not like it's in a novel. But it's interesting because in the works of, like, Steinbeck and others, um, Sachs, <clears throat> like, there's a bunch of, you know, any, any, you know, some of the other novelists out there, 
um, the the writing that they did talks about like stuff that they they you know they intertwine their beliefs. So like the idea of I think it was the servant in East of Eden that said, and now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good, which again is somewhat ironic considering the status of the servant compared to the person that they were serving. Um, I, do, you, do you think we try again? You mentioned perfectionism, um, which is a silly thing to ascribe to, but but you know we do it. Um, when you quit, you, <laughs> this is a funny story in the book because it like you know it, it it seemed like an accident, like but was it? I guess and tell the story because, uh, it it felt very familiar to me the way I kind of quit Costco as I kind of walked my way out the door as a door greeter as the last person. <laughs> it was like, I'm going to get closer and closer to the door and then eventually just leave. Um, it, it seemed completely accidental or was it incidental? Maybe. Yeah, probably more incidental, right? It seems obvious looking back, uh, but in the moment it was very confusing. Yeah. I just got frustrated in an email. Like I think the seed had been planted in my head um, that I was going to quit. And I just like, I think it's time for me to go or something. I think it might be time for me to move on or yeah, something like that. It was that. like a throwaway line, which, which <laughs> might've meant like, let's move on from this discussion, but <laughs> you didn't. No, no, no. <laughs> my, there, there was context. Yeah. I might, me and my boss have been kind of at each other. Mm-hmm. He, he was a very like power hungry guy. And mm-hmm. like, I think he was sort of getting annoyed with me and wanted me out of the practice and somebody that might stick around and be a little less driven to like extract more money. Right. Um, and yeah, he calls me back. He's like, all right, I already talked to the head of the office. Like, it's okay that you're leaving the company. Uh, and I was like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, he thought I quit. I thought it was just like teeing up the conversation, right? right? But I didn't do anything to stop it. No, that, yeah. And then I was like, okay. I was like, yeah, let's talk when I'm back in the office. I was like traveling. Um, and I walked down to the pool and I told my friend, I was like, I think I just quit my job. <laughs> And then it became real. And like that weekend was super painful for me. It, I felt so bad that weekend. And I actually changed my flight to stay a few more days in Florida and didn't even tell my boss, and like well, just sort of pretended like I was working remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was, I sort of realized I had started a new chapter and I, it was really scary. Um, I didn't have the words, the language, the understanding I have. And like, that's just basically like why I had to write and figure all this stuff out over the past five, six years. It, it's funny because the parallels to my quitting story. Um, and this, so, so, no, quick, go ahead, go quick ahead. Quick interjection. No, this no. is so common. Yep. Everyone asks on podcasts, when's the moment you knew, right? What I found over and over again is there's a slow unfolding that that ends with an external acknowledgement of the shift, yep. right? But you're always like 90% of the way, way when that like quote unquote moment happens. Yep. And, and that's, and to me, what happened was, and this is, this is, it's, it's interesting because one fear got broken, but another fear didn't when I quit being a manager at Costco. So I, 
the writing was on the wall, and eventually I just said, you know what, it's time for me to step down. I didn't outright quit Costco. I just went from, but it was very strategic because, <laughs> so I, I, had, I was running two departments. I was running the food court and the service deli, which is a lot of work. Like they're two completely different types of, and I was getting paid the same salary as anybody who was running one department. So it was very tricky. Um, and there was a lot of nuance. One was more merch. One was more service. Like there's a bunch of different things that went on there. I learned a lot about how to manage things by managing those two different areas. But, and so I trained somebody in the food court and eventually they just gave me the deli, but that's because my work performance was slipping. Now I, prescri- I, I was like, Oh, it's because I'm trying to do too much. Really. My interest was waning at that point. Like I realized like I was sold a bill of goods that, that I didn't really want. Um, and what happened was eventually we swapped positions. So the person that was in charge of the food court did a really great job. She's still actually there. And she swapped positions with me because the deli was struggling. So they put me back in the food court, which was an easier business to run. And then, and it was still, I still wasn't, it, my cup wasn't being filled. I was miserable. And, but, I, and my wife knew it. Everyone knew it. Like I was, I was not in a good, good space. The deli was getting busier and she, she's like, what do you think I should do? I'm like, I think you should post a part-time position. Like you should post a part-time position for the deli. Cause that way you have flexibility. You don't need to pay them for 40 hours. Like I was basically mentoring her in a way because I had done all that. But I also, I think, well, no, I know I was basically creating a position for myself because <laughs> I didn't want to step down from management to a full-time job because they would still have control. They would say, you're working 40 hours. These are the hours you're going to have, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Plus I didn't want to learn anything new. I just wanted to go in and so I could start forging a new, a new direction for myself. So as soon as she put that job posting up and went away, I literally grabbed it off of the board, went into the warehouse manager's office and said, I'm stepping down. And it was like, I gave like your email. I gave them the out. Like, uh, they're like, okay, good. Cause I was still not doing a great job. And they said, great, we'll put you on the front end. I'm like, nope, this is the job I want. And I had so much seniority, like there was no way they couldn't give me that job. And if they tried to, I would have been able to fight it. So they gave me the job. So I gave them like a month. I gave them enough time to like, it wasn't like I, but it was such a strategic stepping down. Now the story I've never really told before, and I know I'm going on a bit here was eventually they tried to get me back up into a position of authority. So they, and when I say authority, they made me a sales auditor. Like Mike, this job, the hours are great, et cetera, et cetera. And I did it for a while. I'm like, okay, I'm tired of being in the deli. Let me do something interesting. If I'm going to be here, I might as well. And I started to be the sales auditor. Well, the the 25 hours turned into 30 because you could reconcile things. You had to stay longer. And I was in the office and I was becoming part of the team again. And literally I felt one day I just had that moment of like, whoa, 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 whoa. I felt I was being sucked back in. And so then I stepped down and again, same thing. Saw a position for the, you know, the people that were at the front door and they walk around and they look like they're doing nothing because mm-hmm. they mainly are. Um, <laughs> I wanted that job. And again, they couldn't refuse me. But how did you ever, the reason I tell this, and, and I know we're getting close to time. In fact, we're a little bit over, um, is did you ever almost get sucked back in to the path? No, no, no it, it was over the day I walked away. Okay. Um, well, I, I call this like the last stand and it's something I've been playing with since writing the book mm-hmm. and I found it in more people is like, 
I was crafting a multi-year career plan with me for promotion and to become like a senior um, consultant and make more money and lead client accounts. And that was like three to three to six months before the email I sent. Wow. (laughs) So I, I, call this the last stand. And like, I found it, I actually had a friend recently that just quit his job. And he was talking about like how he asked for like triple to stay and like this year long retention bonus. And as soon as he sent it and asked for it, he knew he was done. Um, It's interesting because there's a lot of people that talk about that. Like if you don't want to do something, ask for a ridiculous amount of money and see if they give it. If they give it, then you'll do it. I'm like, but to me, it's almost like often. Yeah. Yeah. Often they don't actually want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to me, but yet the allure, like you said, like you said earlier of money of like, well, it, it, you know, and you're selling, you're selling yourself, you know, oddly enough short, <laughs> you know, if you do something like that, I would imagine. Right. I mean, I've not tried that strategy personally. I've contemplated it though. I think a lot of people have. Yeah. I think, um, make it worth my while. Right. You know, for years, I was dedicated to like, okay, I'm making this work on my own. Like I was living abroad, um, traveling and like, I was independent, living on very little. It was great. Like, but I was scared of like creating a job. So I held back. I think now I'm more, I've done more experiments. I've done more work. I've made money in so many different ways that like, I'm not opposed. I've also had enough distance from the corporate world. I'm not opposed to like getting a job. It'd probably be like two to three days a week if I ever did something, but it would be like on my terms. Right. I know my boundaries now. I know what I what will destroy me over the long term. Um, I do some short-term freelance projects, which are kind of like consulting-ish, but it's low enough time that it's like, okay, I'll do it for the trade-off. They'll buy me more freedom in the long term. It's, it's, it's um, like it's like George Carlin as the comedian. People are like, he sold out. Well, no, he he did other side jobs like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and the George Carlin show simply to make money so he could support the life he ultimately wanted to leave. And that's kind of what you're, you're saying there. You do those jobs just so you, right. you have a little bit of your toe in the palm, but not like, it's not the be all and end all. Yeah. There's so many more degrees of freedom on this path. Um, just being able to mix up your year, right? Mm. Like <clears throat> a lot of people, <clears throat> a lot of people don't realize like full-time work is basically an indefinite work year mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you're bought into like a successful career path, like you're sort of bought into like this, how you're going to structure your life forever. And taking a break from that is to give up the identity. So like you're sort of in it for long haul. Working on your own, you can like level up and down so much. Like you can take a full-time job for three months and then do nothing for three months and then write for three months and then write a book over a year and like mix and match different things over a week, a month, a year, multiple years. It's it's just way more freedom. And like, I've, I feel like more people should um, at least experiment with what I call freelance year for a year. I think most people can make it work, especially if they're like already working in a decent company. As we wrap up, that is a perfect segue to the go find out portion. Now, we talked about before we hit record what I found this book to be. And you, you need, if I think everybody should pick up this book, not because it's a how to book, but because it's a why to book. It's called The Pathless Path Imagining a New Story for Work and Life. 
I will say that at the end of the book, you offer some insights. This is the last thing you said. You didn't write this book. I, I gave three pages. Of I know. I was going to say, like you literally said, I didn't write this book to provide you with a set of how-to instructions for embracing the pathless path because that would be the exact antithesis of the pathless path, right? <laughs> Instead, I want to inspire you to dream a little, a little bit bigger, add some nuance to how you think about life decisions, and give you models and ideas that might enable you to embrace the spirit of the pathless path. And I have quotes, like you have quotes from David Foster Wallace in here. You mentioned Agnes Callard. You mentioned, um, uh, there's uh, uh, Paul Jarvis. We talked about that at the beginning. Paul Jarvis has been on the program before, a friend of mine. He comes up in the book. Like, there are lots of, you, you explored... And as David, I think David uh, White says that um, what's a, a conversational reality is what, you know, the, yeah. the human experience is, right? Like, that's really what life is, like, all about. So before we end this conversation, um, as this book is out in the world now, it's been out in the world since, what, May of 2022, I believe, at this point, um, what are your feelings about the path that this book has gone on and the path that it's taken you on so far. It's, it's wild. It's, it's been very, um, uh, I just like, I feel so flattered that people continue to buy this book. It's done far better than I imagined. It's sold like five or 6,000 books now, uh, which for a self-employed author is pretty epic. Like um, I've made, profit after like cost maybe like 25 grand yeah it's self-published too right it's self it's completely yeah i did i did everything myself i do everything of everything i do myself just so i can then help people um take the path behind me yeah um and yeah it's it's been mind-blowing it's probably done about 10 times better than i expected um and i feel like it's sort of like uh vote of confidence from the universe that I'm onto something and to keep going. Um, and the letters I receive from people, the emails are like, all right, I, I feel like I have a responsibility to keep sharing and exploring these ideas and experimenting with my own life. Cause for me, this is fun, not scary. Um, and yeah, I'm going to keep going. And it inspired me to lean back into my podcast, the pathless path podcast, which I just, rebranded because of the book and yeah i'm just gonna keep writing for free about these things uh, on my newsletter as well so people can follow along there paul this has been a great conversation we could i, I try to make these as like we're sitting having a drink of some sort whether it's a coffee a tea or a beer or whatever and this is definitely one of those episodes where it feels like we have had a productive conversation we could keep going we i know we could but in the interest of time for you and and, and the listener um Thanks so much for being part of this conversation today. Again, where can people keep up with you and the work that you're doing? Yeah. So one comment and then I'll answer that. I think, um, I think productivity is not inherently bad. I think people are being productive about the wrong things often. Right. And I'm interested in being productive and the things that light my heart on fire, my soul on fire and like my full, like, bring forth my full aliveness. When people say, oh, I had a productive Sunday, I did my laundry and all these things, it sort of makes me sad because I know that their sense of productivity is like they just need to get things done, yep. right? 
for me, if I cannot do the laundry and have a beautiful conversation like this, that is productive for me. And that is worth doing. Um, I am inspired to help people find the work, work worth doing. And uh, that's what um, motivates me. So thanks for this conversation. And if people want to learn more, just Google my name. I'm like very Googleable and uh, boundless.substack.com is where I will continue writing for free every Saturday for potentially forever. <laughs> Paul, thanks for having a productive conversation with me today. Sounds good. Thank you, Mike. Big thanks to Paul for joining me on the program. You can find all of the relative links that we've discussed, things that are directly related and somewhat indirectly related at productivityist.com slash podcast 460. If you'd like to support the show, you can check out the sponsors that you heard during this episode as well. Just go to productivityist.com slash podcast sponsors to make that happen. Another way to support the show is to subscribe to the podcast wherever you are listening to podcasts, including this one right now. That's it for this episode. I'll let you get on with your day. Until next time, I'm Mike Vardy, the host of A Productive Conversation, reminding you, stop guessing and start going. See you later. <laughs>